Please can you welcome to the stage the speakers for the second plenary session of the LSE Asia Forum and its chair, Professor Craig Calhoun. Thank you, and welcome back for this panel. Our theme is cities and urbanization. It shouldn't be thought that this is an entirely separate theme from the others of international relations or broad-based economic growth. Cities are sites and also drivers of economic growth. Cities are the settings for much of the international connection that is forged throughout Asia and indeed globally. So cities are crucial. In Malaysia, by 2050, not so far in the future, nearly everyone will be living in some sort of city. The transformation of previously rural societies into increasingly urbanized societies is a continuing and important one. Over half of us across the globe live in cities. By 2050, over 75% of the world's people will be urban. The LSE has pioneered interdisciplinary work on social, spatial, and environmental impacts on cities and impacts of urbanization. This is done in a range of different departments. It's a reminder that cities are connectors. They're not a separate issue, but they connect geography, sociology, uh, environmental questions, questions of climate change, questions of economics, questions of politics. In this session, we will look at cities at three different scales, the global, the regional, and the local, or national. Ricky Burdett from the LSE will present an overview of the major social and environmental challenges facing cities today, based on research at LSE Cities and its global project, The Urban Age. Mike Douglas will then respond with a regional perspective on key issues affecting urban growth and sometimes decline in Southeast Asia, based on his research at the Asia Research Institute of the National University of Singapore. And then Datuk said, will follow with a more local, but in fact very large-scale perspective, responding on how Malaysia's main investment agency, Iskandar Investment, is transforming a major part of the country in Johor, close to Singapore, into a new metropolitan cluster. At the end of this, of these three presentations, I will give the panelists a chance to respond to each other and then, as usual, open to the floor for questions. Let me begin by inviting my colleague, Ricky Burdett, to speak on global environmental, spatial, and social trends, ending with a somewhat local account of one global event, the London 2012 Olympics. Maybe this will remind you all of happy days in London. Ricky? <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Thank you very much, Craig. And um, given that we're talking about cities, which are physical artifacts, I'd like, if possible, to start immediately with the first slide and um, very much uh, invite you to look at the images, because all three of us will be using images to discuss the issue of cities in the round, as Craig has said. I think an important thing to say right at the beginning 
is that uh, what perhaps we add in this panel and in the work we've been doing at the LSE to the economic and the social and the political arsenal of uh, the LSE is the beginning of an understanding of how all these issues relate to the spatial dimension. That's very much the focus of what I want to talk about today. I'm also talking about this at an intentionally uh, global scale. Let's see whether this works. If I press this, should it be moving? No? Can we have the next slide? Right, thank you. I'm talking about uh, this issue at an intentionally global scale, partly to begin to pull out what some of the sort of major aspects are in terms of um, urban change, how cities look different, how they function differently, how they affect society and how they affect the, uh, affect the environment, but also to begin to talk about how some of these issues relate to the more regional issues that, of course, Mike, who is an expert on this, will be talking about. And as I say, this is part of an ongoing project of work that we've been doing over the years at the LSE. Here you see Craig uh, a year or so ago with the Prime Minister, David Cameron, and Boris Johnson, the mayor. Don't talk to each other very much. And I'm raising this on purpose because I think the notion of governance, collaboration, is at the heart of this discussion. We've already talked about the fact that we are where we are in terms of the point of urbanization. Uh, we, only a few years back, the UN confirmed that roughly half the world is urbanized, and this is where we're going, 75%. Interestingly, to just look back, when my great-grandfather was alive, not that long ago, only 10% of the world was urbanized. So we're talking about uh, a pace and scale of change, which is in many ways unprecedented, and matches, of course, many of the statistics that were being used before. Now, I think... The issue for us today is to think about the spatial dimension as part of this social, political, economic, and even cultural dimension. Ultimately, we have choices in the ways that cities are shaped. This is one way. It's Mexico City. It's an endless city. You could go on with these pictures, uh, even five miles to the left and five miles to the right, and it wouldn't uh, capture the whole city. And obviously, this endless dimension has impacts on the environment and has impacts on society. This is one way of doing it. This is another way, far more familiar to those of you in this region. And the implications of this are things that I want to talk about as I sort of set the context. The notion of density, of actually bringing people, the economy, uh, transactions closer together to make cities more efficient is a fundamental part of the discussion of the future of cities. And here, of course, you face challenges of growth, uh, but also enormous opportunities in terms of investment, which we'll come back to. This is a graph which shows where this country is going in terms of urbanization, dramatically fast uh, rate of urbanization that is being witnessed here. But other parts of Asia are developing uh, at a similar pace, with very, very different issues, and I'll come back to them. Just think that Mumbai has actually grown 2,000% over the last 100 years or so. London, in the same time, grew by 14%. And that's simply because it grew in the previous century, the 19th century, rather than the 20th century. So why is this region so important to the discussion on cities? What you see here is a graph, a map, which shows in green 
where cities grew from the Second World War, more or less. And you can see that places like Tokyo, much of Europe, much of North America, that's where cities grew. In yellow is where the UN projects there will be greater growth over the next 25 years. So it's very clear that the regions of Africa and Asia are at the center of this urbanization. Now, even though you can't see the figures in detail, it is quite striking that actually the fastest-growing cities are mainly in Africa, parts of Asia. Many of the countries, of course, are relatively poor and relatively low energy at the moment, themes that we will come back to in a second. In the case of Kuala Lumpur, we're looking at roughly a 3% growth at the moment, which is sort of halfway above at the, at the top. Now, one of the issues that we tend to talk about perhaps too much is megacities, that we're only talking about cities which are over 10 million. Actually, most of the people in the world who live in cities live in cities of under 500,000, and those are the ones that are growing fastest. And they're growing fastest for very obvious reasons. They're doing what cities have ever, always done from their birth in the Mediterranean five, 6,000 years ago to, of course, cities in China and elsewhere. They're about transactions. It's where people come together to actually do business, to learn things, to exchange goods and information. And it is quite striking that actually 12% of uh, the global population uh, living in cities actually has roughly 50% of the world's uh, GVA. Now, there are consequences about this, and these are the two axes that I want to really address here. Clearly, cities, because of what they are, the engines of global economy, consume an enormous amount of energy. So they have an impact. And this is something that is probably less understood and needs to be discussed. 70%, over 70%, nearly 75% of global CO2 emissions come from cities. So actually, a small change in the way that we design, manage, and organize our cities has a significant impact on the planet and its sustainability at that level. But the social aspect, the second dimension I want to talk about, is also equally significant. According again to UN projections, one out of every three of you, just think of who's sitting to your left and right, one out of every three in the next 25 years will be living in a slum without access to some of the basic sanitation, sewers, and other things. This was mentioned earlier in the previous panel. So how does one deal with that? It's very different in different parts of the world, but Asia does face those challenges in parts of it. Let me share that with you, these two axes of what cities are about with this graph. What this shows along this axis is the human development index. Roughly speaking, the more you come to the right-hand side, higher levels of education, higher levels of affluence, longer life expectancy. As you go up the scale, it is energy footprint, effectively the ecological footprint, roughly speaking, how much energy we use per person. There's no surprise, perhaps, Craig, and you won't mind my saying this to you as an American. I take full responsibility. Right, that <laughs> the USA up there is at the top. Interesting discussion we had before about where China is. In this case, it's down here, but moving very, very rapidly. Now, what is important about this um, graph is this dotted line. This is the capacity we have with one Earth in terms of the energy available. So the American model, Craig's model, 
is unsustainable in a very simple way. We need five Earths to live that way in terms of think of the sprawl, the cars we need, the amount of space we actually use. Now, this becomes very interesting for us because there, is there a model, is the question for this discussion and others, of actually organizing cities in such a way that you improve quality of life and all the aspects that come with that, but also reduce uh, the amount of energy you use. And there are examples. So interestingly for Malaysia, uh, and I'm sure Datuk Syed will be talking about this, you have a choice in many ways in which way to go. And what level of investment is there from government and the private sector to manage that growth becomes significant. In talking about cities in Asia, one cannot talk about it in isolation. There are other cities in the world which have followed different paths, and perhaps some are positive models and some are negative models. Here's a negative one. The city of Sao Paulo, the engine of the Brazilian economy, extraordinary place in terms of its vibrancy, is a city which is extending outwards, and those who cannot afford the services of the city are living out in these favela-like slums on the edge of the city. Not one of these buildings has sewers or facilities. This is the major water reservoir of the city. I need not say what happens to the level of pollution of that lake. This is how people get around. You may recognize some of this here in KL, I have to say, but I don't want to be unkind to our hosts. But it is interesting that this city actually has commuting times of over four hours on average, over four hours a day, two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. Now, what happens in this place, where some people can afford to, is actually use helicopters to get from A to B. It's the city, which has a GDP uh, per capita, which is obviously much lower than Tokyo, obviously much lower than New York, has the same number of helicopters, more or less, than those other two cities. Is that a sustainable way of dealing with a system, an urban system, which actually every now and then just collapses? And I know that Mike will be talking about this in terms of environmental risk in the region. Now, we make investments in cities. The issue of flooding, the issue of water is a big question in this country, of course, in particular. And what is actually happening is that investment is made, often funded by World Bank and other agencies, for what to me seems like totally unreasonable pieces of infrastructure. This you will recognize as a major new link in Mumbai. Most people feel that it's a great shortcut to another traffic jam. You know, what problem have you actually solved by doing that, rather than invest, say, in sustainable public transport? Are there models, therefore, in our research, we can ask, which make this system actually work more sustainably? Are there ways of intervening in the city fabric, its transport infrastructure, its DNA, which are politically uh, possible and, and also affordable? And one need not go very far around the world. There are many examples of this, but even in a relatively poor country of Colombia, the capital city there has basically introduced the bus rapid transit system, which, as you can see from these statistics, has been quite significant in actually making movement more fluid, but more importantly, allowing people who need to get to work quickly and efficiently to do that. So this is very much, as Craig said earlier, a part of the sort of economy of cities and not just a spatial or transport issue. The two are absolutely connected. And in fact, in this particular city, they've used bicycles and bicycle routes to allow connections 
which otherwise wouldn't be there. This is not in any way a developing world solution. Places like Copenhagen, which at the level of sort of sustainability and efficiency of cities probably cannot be beaten today, there are now 40% of people who actually cycle uh, on a daily basis. That's a very large number in a place which is, of course, very affluent. A key issue for any scholar looking at cities is to understand what is known as the decoupling between uh, growth, increase in GDP and GVA, and energy. Think back to that large graph that I showed you comparing HDI, Human Development Index, and Ecological Footprint. And I think the interesting thing to see here, and these are four or five examples, uh, mainly European as you can see here, where the blue line shows growth in GVA per capita, so economic growth and also population growth. And interestingly, the green line actually shows consumption of energy per capita actually dropping. So it's this decoupling which is actually a very important thing to try and model and plan for when it comes to cities in this region and elsewhere. The economist um, Ed Glazer, of course, has talked about the impact and the importance of density in terms of making cities incredibly efficient in terms of um, uh, uh, job security and competitiveness among cities. And I want to show you three cities compared from this point of view, relating the notion of density, of form, literally how close people live together and, and how many buildings are close together, um, and the relationship to public transport. Here is London, you know it. Here is New York, and here is Hong Kong. What we've done at the LSE is mapped the relative densities of where people live on the left and where people work. As you can see in London, and many of you remember that, it's quite a dispersed, it's quite a green and quite a low-density city in terms of where people live. Front and back gardens everywhere, put it that way. This is actually what happens on a daily basis of people moving into the city of London or places like Canary Wharf. So bear that in mind and then look at New York. New York, actually you have exactly the same population, half the footprint. It's a denser city. It's as if in this room, instead of this number of people, we had twice the number of people. We'd be a little less comfortable, perhaps, but it is more efficient. And there is New York in terms of actually its uh, number of people come in to work on, in downtown and in midtown. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people moving in in less than 40 minutes a day. That's the average commuting time in New York City. And this is Hong Kong. Density, much, much higher in terms of residential density, and work density, not as high as New York or London. But the fact that this density and this density are actually relatively close to each other explains why uh, you have a city that has an extraordinary efficiency in its transport network. Hong Kong actually stands out, I have to say, for all of us, as a city that has 93% of its population, that means top, bottom, and middle, using public transport, and average commuting times, I am told, are something like 15 to 20 minutes, which is an extraordinary uh, measure of efficiency when it comes to uh, a city of that scale. Uh, other cities, as you can see here, um, have large numbers of people use public transport. And, of course, in reflecting where we are here, and this is slightly unkind and slightly provocative, there is somewhere to go. 
when we're looking at nearly 80% of the current population of this city uh, still using cars to get to work. Now, I know there will be investment in public transport and subways and the MRT expansion, very, very important. But looking at the competitiveness in the region, looking at what other cities are doing, I think it's important to think of that in, in the context. KL has grown dramatically, of course. Um, you can see it there. What happened in the 20-year period from 1990 to 2009, from the red to the blue. What is really quite interesting are these numbers over here, down on the bottom, because even though, of course, the area has grown a lot, the relative density has dropped. In other words, as you go out, there's a form of suburbanization, effectively, which makes it more thinly dispersed around uh, the country. Now, unless you support this with good public transport, probably this will end up uh, not in the most sustainable way. And that's why when you see this graph here, in terms of KL, the number of cars has grown relatively steadily over the years, and actually public transport use has actually dropped, which would be something one, I think one needs to pay attention to when you come to understand how KL and other cities work. Now, if you remember those density diagrams I just showed you, it's quite interesting to just look at KL from the same point of view. This is the density map the density graph of this city. And it's interesting because it has clusters of density around it. It's not like New York, which has two, or London, which is actually very low level. And I think, to me, this appears like something that could be made to work very efficiently if you build up around those centers with good public transport hubs. So I, as ever, I think there are potentials in where you organize cities and compare, and compare them to others uh, in a similar region. But all this, and this is one of the final points I wish to make, all this depends on who makes the decisions and what decisions are made. Ultimately, seeing this from an LSE perspective, uh, the notion of governments is absolutely central. One way of looking at this is who governs what. These are comparative maps of several cities, and I'm just going to look at two. This is Mexico City down here and London over here. London, we'll see in a moment, and you're all uh, familiar with that, actually has now one mayor, one directly elected mayor, for more or less the region which is inhabited. In the darker color, you see basically where buildings are. The largest city in the world, apart from the Tokyo Kanto region, is Mexico City. And actually, the mayor of Mexico is responsible for that bit only. The rest is the state of Mexico traditionally two very different parties. So the plans for the water system, the housing, the transport infrastructure literally don't connect. So the question of who governs what, I think, is absolutely central. An issue which is, of course, very relevant in many Asian cities and relates to some of the discussions earlier today is what levels of governance are involved in that process. What we've done here is taken uh, a number of cities. You have uh, London, New York... Berlin, and uh, Mumbai, and done a very simple analysis in blue showing federal government responsibility, central government, effectively, responsibility. In yellow, state governance, such as the state of New York, so to speak. Uh, red, the metropolitan authority, if it exists. And in green, local representation. Let's call it community. And it becomes quite interesting to see that in a city like London, there is no 
state. In an Indian city like uh, Mumbai, where you have a chief minister represented at state level, there actually is no green. So these are, I think, fundamental issues that perhaps we can discuss in a moment in terms of understanding the dynamics and the future of Asian cities. I mentioned before, and Craig alluded to this, that we want to bring this back home. This is clearly not an Asian example I'm going to give you, but it does bring together some issues of how can you intervene in the physical fabric of a city in order to repair what is there, make it more efficient, uh, and actually more sustainable. In London, we had this mayor who more or less said, let's do everything possible. Now we have this mayor who has a very different view. But behind that lies the fact that both these mayors actually have quite a lot of power to make decisions such as introducing the congestion charge or cycle scheme, which has been actually quite effective. And most recently, there's an investment of nearly 20 billion pounds in a major new underground rail system, which will connect east and west of London, which is being built today. These um, decisions can only be made if there is an authority which represents, in a way, the vision and the future of that city. Let me end by bringing all this down, as I said, to a concrete project. Many of you in this room are familiar with London. Many of you probably live somewhere around here, roughly. What this map shows you is something you may not be familiar with. In red is social deprivation. In green is the other end of the scale. It's very clear that London is a relatively divided city. East London is much more deprived than West London and particularly and the periphery. So when the Olympics had to choose a site, or the Olympic groups in London had to choose a site to where to go, this is where they located it. And just think of this in terms of deprivation. There is seven years difference in terms of life expectancy between West and East London today. You can live to roughly 80 or 77, and every time you take the underground, the Jubilee Line, every tube stop you take going east, you lose one year of life in our city today. This is the same difference as Ho Chi Minh City in Hong Kong or La Paz and Buenos Aires in one city. So these fundamental aspects of, I think, inequality are uh, of importance. The Olympics project was not only about a two-week event. It's about trying to rebalance exactly that point uh, that I made a moment ago. This is what the site was like, very similar, I think, to some of the areas that Datuk Syed and many of his colleagues are being looking at, ex-industrial sites in need of, of uh, revitalization. So this is what the site was like only nine years ago. This is what actually happened, more or less, during the Games itself. All you need to notice is that it was all cleaned up, and you can see some buildings and structures were absolutely temporary. The most important image I'm going to show about the Olympics is this, that it's an opportunity to actually reuse a part of lost opportunity in terms of, in the case of London, to create a completely new piece of city with jobs, with housing, including affordable housing, and everything here uh, is well supplied by public transport. The Olympics were a car-free games. You could not go there unless you went by public transport. So this is what that site used to be. I'm sure my fridge and many of my colleagues from the LSE's fridges ended up right in the middle of the site uh, in 2005. This is a picture I took then. This is the same picture, same site now. 
Now, it's not a question of just making places beautiful and agreeable, but it is all about creating the sort of the infrastructure which creates the opportunities of both a better quality of life, better education, better public space, better sports facilities, of course, in, in this case, but also more and future housing, which you can see being built uh, in some of the areas where the temporary sports structures are literally uh, have been taken down uh, as, as we now speak. Nearly 3,000 people have moved into what was the athlete's village. 30% of that housing actually is affordable housing. And this is a view of what this whole neighborhood might be like. So in concluding, what I really want to raise here, and we'll be passing the baton on to Mike and then on to, to Datuk Syed, these issues of environmental design, of compact, intensely designed cities around good public transport are exactly the issues being dealt with everywhere in the world. And I think there are lessons to be followed. So I think the challenge for anyone is to try and think of cities in this uh, interdisciplinary way that we have been developing at the LSE and to all work together to make decisions so that we don't end up over there, but perhaps somewhere over here. Thank you very much. Okay. Our next panelist is Mike Douglas, who leads the Asian Urbanisms Cluster at the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. He's an urban planner trained at UCLA and has previously taught in the Netherlands and in the UK. And apart from being an expert on urban trends in the wider Southeast Asia region, his interests range from understanding the environmental risks faced by cities today, earthquakes, flooding, landslides, all currently in various ways in the news, uh, and asking how prepared are we or not to the social and political challenges and opportunities of new generations of urban dwellers throughout the region. Mike. Thank you. I hope that introduction doesn't uh, discount does my time. subtracted from your time. Thanks now. so much. Very pleased to be here and to be invited. I only took one hour to get here from Singapore. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy about that, too. Uh, mostly, I'm very pleased at the morning session how candid and how open the discussion is, and I'm very impressed by noting that diplomacy is still a craft. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a very good one, as we saw. So I'm going to be focusing on vulnerabilities and risks uh, of a Asia's urban transition. Let me see if this is going to work. Yeah. I can hardly see my slide from here, but I'll try. Um, so, as has already been noted, uh, the, particularly Southeast Asia now, but Asia in general has gone through the most rapid urban transition is going through in world history. And so we're going from 20% or so in the 1950s, 60s. By the end of this century, Asia will be fully 80% or so. Uh, in other words, it will have traversed that uh, transition to a fully urban societies in a very condensed uh, time. It also shows you that uh, urbanization is highly associated with increases in uh, per capita income. So urbanization is seen as very positive in terms of economic growth. And uh, apropos our earlier discussion this morning, we can see that indeed uh, the data would show the Asia century has arrived as the uh, share of G GDP in the world shifts from or at least uh, increases uh, the share in Asia. 
There is also other things, uh, other things, for example, uh, in socially speaking, a growth of huge urban middle class, and that's palpable. We can see that all around us. That has a great implication for the built environment and what kinds of uh, activities we're going to see in cities. The last slide here is a cautionary one that uh, not always do we see cities enjoying uh, a growth rate that, that is, uh, generates economic growth. And uh, my colleagues in some parts of Africa tell me that cities grow just by people coming to them. The state does not p- provide any kind of infrastructure. And so they're growing relatively without increases in, uh, in welfare. Okay, so we have uh, some of the usual kinds of uh, data to show you here. But basically, it's, it's telling us that the largest share of increases in urban population in the world are accruing in Asia. And in that process, there is a, uh, a literature and a lot of empirical studies of a new breed of cities called world cities. They can be identified and categorized. What I'm uh, saying, and we'll have to talk about this a little bit more later because I think there's a myth about small cities growing faster than big ones. That We'll, we'll talk to, about that later. At any rate, all the countries I know, uh, the share of urban and national populations accruing to the largest uh, regions, city regions, is actually increasing. I don't know any exception to this. Uh, And as such, we see that urbanization is not a uniform process, it's very uneven, and it's accruing much more economic and and other forms of power to a set of uh, a a limited number of cities. This quote from the McKinsey Global Institute says 600 cities in the world will be responsible for two-thirds of the world. The global GDP is quite a powerful statement itself. However, uh, well, in addition to that, we're seeing uh, Asia come together as a world region, not simply geographically, but also through interactions. And uh, particularly since around 1985, when uh, Endaka, when the Japanese yen doubled over, overnight, Japanese and then Korean, Taiwan, Singapore, and others started to invest in Asia. And we saw a new age really appearing roughly from that date. In addition, of course, is the rise of China. We've, we've talked about that. It's probably the most powerful dynamic uh, going on in uh, this part of the world. And that starts really around 1992, when Deng Xiaoping uh, makes a, a very wide opening to the economy. So you, the data shows that there's a new dynamic that's appeared over the last 30 years, and it's really centering around uh, a, an emerging, what I would call, uh, East Asia super corridor. And you can see elements of this being constructed uh, right before us. Uh, fast trains, super highways, uh, airport connections, and so forth. And I think this, is, this was going to develop, and this will be the uh, core of the Asia economy, not counting South Asia in this particular uh, discussion. There is the rise of China. We discussed this a little bit this morning. Has uh, it's happened so fast, and it's ha- it's having at least some short-term impacts on neighboring countries. Uh, if you go to the secondary cities in Korea or Japan, you'll see that their industries have indeed moved to China, and there is a dampening effect. There is a crisis in these cities, 
We're uh, also experiencing through other kinds of dynamics, including population decline, the absolute shrinkage of cities in higher income countries in the world, which I'll get to. So uh, if we're talking about megatrends, one of the others is indeed the demographic shift toward lower and indeed uh, depopulation or absolute decline of population. When this starts happening, the first thing uh, that happens is the labor force starts to decline before the population does. And so we see in the case of Korea, for example, and that's just one of many, that the uh, labor force has been declining in absolute numbers for uh, more than a decade, two decades. Same in Japan. And yet, ironically, and you're all economists, you can explain this better, even with a shrinking labor force, labor is becoming precarious. Uh, full-time employment is going down. The, the bond between labor and capital in Japan was broken, and the same in Korea, so that you have one-third or more of the workforce, Japanese workforce or Korean workforce, that are part-time or sub-part-time. Sub-part-time meaning not even having a job tomorrow, but going to a place to get a job for a few days. These people have no savings, and they have no pension. So they're now reaching the age of 40 or so, and they're going to, it's a very big implication for the future. This has also brought in foreign workers, and so we're seeing the, the rise of uh, multicultural cities and countries that never thought they were multicultural before, and this is also creating new forms of stress on political and other institutions. Uh, okay, shrinking cities. This, I, uh, as a person who studies cities all of my life, I had not thought this was possible until recently it was brought to my attention that massively, that is in Europe, the United States, and higher income countries, cities are actually starting to shrink in population. Uh, this is partly demographic, but it's also partly geopolitical or geoeconomic in the sense that, uh, as I said before, China's rise is also a redeployment of lower-level kinds of economic functions. So in the case of Japan, you see that basically Tokyo and Nagoya, which is Toyota, are the only two city regions that are really growing. All the rest are experiencing uh, absolute population decline. Uh, in addition, if we look inside of cities, and that's already been referred to in the previous discussion, uh, all of this, these changes, if you look at the, the, your left top, uh, new kinds of uh, layers of the built environment have appeared only within a very short space of about 30 years, where you have suburban housing, new towns, simulated uh, 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 facades, um, Franchise, malls, shopping, business centers, world hubs, all these are all <clears throat> have come to Asia only in a very short period of time. They're making a very big impact on the social life of cities as well. And so some of the concerns are the loss of public space, uh, vernacular city is disappearing, uh, fragmentation through privatization and surveillance, that kind of thing. We need to pay attention to the microspaces of city to also see how governance and other uh, factors can actually be possible. And I think there's an erosion of the possibility of governing cities through these kinds of activities. Okay, uh, the last part I want to go into is about environmental disaster risks. 
We are in a, a period in which uh, every indicator shows you that the number of disasters in the world are increasing, and they're increasing very fast, both in terms of population uh, affected as well as economic costs. So why is that happening? Uh, <clears throat> we are told we're in the era of the Anthropocene in which we can no longer use the word natural disaster because we're so involved in it we are creating most of these disasters as human beings. There are five effects I'll quickly go through that are affecting this. One is agglomeration. As I said before, we're getting city regions now that are approaching or even surpassing 30 million people in population. These are agglomerations, not administrative boundaries. Uh, a study, recent study showed that most of the largest cities in Asia are critically unprepared to meet a disaster such as flooding. And in that context, uh, we are talking about just in those cities alone, over 200 million people are living in very dense settlements that are not prepared to, to meet disasters. The uh, contributing factor is that cities that are growing most are also coastal. And particularly in China, you see a coastal shift of population. And these are the most endangered or high-risk areas particularly around the Pacific Rim where you have uh, volcanic action and earthquakes that are quite uh, frequent. But you also see uh, global uh, climate change and sea rise affecting that. Just to give one example, I'm using Jakarta, but I could have used Ho Chi Minh City. I could have used many other places. Uh, this, this shows you that while the the United Nations would say Jakarta is only 10 million. In fact, everyone in Indonesia knows that Jakarta is 30 million because it's spread so far behind, beyond its, its boundaries to form a huge super agglomeration. And most of the nighttime population is now suburbanized, but the daytime is in Jakarta. And we see some attempts to come to terms with what has become chronic flooding. Uh, it's, it's an era of chronic flooding of, of Jakarta. It happens every year every two years. Uh, this year it happened, last year uh, it covered the city. The president of the country was out in a rowboat meeting, the, I think, the president of Venezuela or something. Uh, this is so pervasive and there's no policy in place that can really uh, meet this challenge because it's still seen as a water problem when it's actually an ecological problem. In fact, there's a new waterfront fever, so there was a plan, I'm not sure it's going forward, to build a polder in front of, of Jakarta, but right behind it is, are 21 artificial islands that will have things like Golf World and high-end high resorts in the most economically, or sorry, uh, environmentally fragile area in the city. So, uh, third, compound disasters. What we have to be really attentive to is the, the fact that uh, a disaster goes into another disaster. And we can't just consider them at one time. Okay, I'm out of time, but we're finding vulnerability facts, new ones. Of, uh, as we said, slum populations are increasing, but also aging populations. In Tohoku, Japan, it, was, uh, it hit a, a, an area of depopulation with very... Uh, uh, high numbers of senior citizens in, uh, in harm's way. And finally, economic, uh, ecological reach. It's not just cities that are uh, this is happening to, but the, 
the reach of cities into uh, very distant areas. And so you, you find that, the, for example, production of mega dams are having very uh, negative impact on local populations in many ways. So um, finally, if we want a sustainable development, we have to think of scales of neighborhoods, cities, city regions, transporter. We need to make uh, progress in democracy and in decentralization. And I hope we have more time to talk about this. Thanks so much. Our next respondent is uh, Datek Syed, Mohammed Ibrahim, who is well-known uh, and a particularly dynamic uh, property development leader in Malaysia and abroad, and currently president and CEO of Iskander Development Berhad, a major investment and redevelopment agency. And uh, this is backed at once by the federal and the Johar state governments. So we see something of the interscalar uh, phenomenon Ricky was referring to. Its main task since 2005 has been to transform the economically and geographically important region of South Johar. Uh, so we have a chance here to look at um, a specific Malaysian instance in this larger pattern. Thank you, Professor, for the introduction. Assalamu alaikum and good morning. In fact, when I received the invitation, I was supposed to be a moderator. But uh, as you can see, I got myself promoted thanks to Ricky. <laughs> it is a great pleasure to be here with all of you this morning to share my take on cities and urbanization in Malaysia through the lens of my work in Iskandar, Malaysia, which is an upcoming urban development and an investment destination on the rise. Beyond the challenges that were shared by Professor Burdett and Professor Douglas, I have my own challenge, and that is to share 20 years' comprehensive development plan and seven and a half years of achievements in just 10 minutes. I want to keep my presentation fairly brief this morning because, after all, this is a forum and it will be more beneficial to have an engaging discussion later. If you go back in time the middle of 2005, the dominant economic trends at that time include globalization, which increases competition for capital flows, human resources and ideas, the rise of economic giants like China and India, and the impact of technology and innovation. It was with this landscape in mind that both the federal governments of Malaysia, along with the state government of Johor, work on a focused and comprehensive developmental approach to unleash the strategic and geographical value of South Johor. Thus, Iskandar Malaysia was established in 2006. Beyond just leveraging on its strategic location, without the Iskandar Malaysia intervention, South Johor would not only be unable to achieve its full growth potential, but would also face the significant threat to its socio-economic prosperity. For example, unless we create more job opportunities, there will be more unemployed youth in South Johor, which then can lead to social issues or mass migration to other places which can offer job opportunities such as Kuala Lumpur. For the benefit of the audience who are not familiar with the South Johor region, here is a satellite map of South Johor that was taken in 2010 and its strategic location, which is adjacent to Singapore, which has the third highest per capita GDP in the world. If you notice, South Johor has a mixture of both brownfield development centred around the Johor Bahru town and greenfield areas surrounding it. 
So, to realise the vision of Iskana Malaysia as a sustainable metropolis of international standing, the strategic framework shown on the screen acts as our guide navigating towards a holistic development of Iskana Malaysia, bearing in mind the three principles or foundations of nation-building, growth and creation, growth and value creation, and equitable and fair distribution among stakeholders. Two of the key stakeholders in Iskandar Malaysia are the Iskandar Regional Development Authority, or in short, IRDA, and Iskandar Investment Berhad, IIB. Established through an Act of Parliament in 2007, IRDA is the statutory body who is tasked to promote and facilitate the economic and social development in Iskandar Malaysia. IRDA is chaired by both the Prime Minister and the Chief Minister of Johor to ensure alignment of policies and implementation of those policies at the federal as well as at state level. Iskana Investment, on the other hand, is a strategic developer incorporated in November 2006 with the backing of both the federal and state governments and is majority owned by Kazana National Brahat, the Malaysian government's investment arm. IIB plays an important role, especially during the initial stages of the implementation, to undertake the development of projects that are deemed as catalysts to create an attractive and conducive investment destination and environment. These catalysts are an effective way of creating the confidence to encourage private investments. Iskandar Malaysia spans an area of 2,217 square kilometres, which is about three times the size of Singapore. As it is a really big area, Iskana Malaysia is broken up into five key development zones that acts as growth accelerators with its own particular focus on targeted areas. As this is a work in progress towards our journey of crystallizing the vision of a metropolis of international standing, it is obvious that there are gaps in the ecosystem. Notwithstanding this, the initial phase has seen the development and completion of some of the core components of both infrastructure as well as the catalytic projects. It is not just imperative to lay the foundation of the new urban operating environment, but also to create an attractive investment destination out of the well-acknowledged strategic location. The second phase of the journey will involve, amongst others, the emphasis on intensifying the development of catalytic projects, establishing industries, and supplying the talents required to ensure that the growth is sustainable, balanced, and inclusive. Please allow me to share with you an analogy, of, if you will, of how we are inspired by this brand in our efforts to create the transformation and sustainable development of Iskandar Malaysia. I'm sure that uh, some of you have got this in your pocket. Apple now is an icon that represents a brand synonymous with innovation, game changer, as well as success. Apple has successfully created a defining ecosystem in the iPhone. There are essentially two aspects, namely hardware and software, that forms the basis of this game changer. The hardware is so compelling that it influences the design of all mobile phones. Together with the operating system, default applications, and the App Store, 
iPhone have hugely attracted apps developers and telcos to establish a highly successful and expanding community. Likewise, when applied to the development of Iskana Malaysia, the hardware is akin to the infrastructure, amenities and the catalytic projects such as the numerous arterial roads and highways, the broadband infrastructure, airport and seaports, Adu City, Legoland, Putri Harbour and Pinewood Studios. The software is the comprehensive development plan, delivery mechanism, various incentives for the promoted sectors, establishment of industries and the supply of talents, which will ultimately create the new urban operating environment for a livable city in Iskandar, Malaysia. As we build this community, we are always mindful of the needs of the stakeholders and ecosystem for sustainable, balanced and inclusive growth. It is a daunting challenge, no doubt, but surely we will respond to overcome it with creativity, innovation, diligence and commitment from all the key stakeholders. Thank you for, thank you for your time. All right. First, I want to have a little bit of conversation with the panelists. Um, I have a couple of questions for them, but also want to give them a chance to answer each other's in this. And I want to begin with one question, which anyone could take up, but maybe um, uh, especially uh, Mike or Ricky. Just There was talk here of Asian urbanization, and that could just mean something very generic, like there is urbanization in Asia. But it's implied that there's something distinctive about Asian urbanization, the idea of an Asian urbanisms cluster in NUS, for example. How different is urbanization in Asia from other parts of the world, or is it pretty much the same thing happening in a different period? Well, I myself would use the word Asia, not Asian. Okay. Because the, the diversity of experiences in Asia is tremendous. Mm-hmm. And there is no one Asia experience. We, we know that. Uh, having said that, at, at a very high level of abstraction, of course, you have, as I mentioned, the world's fastest urban transition going on. And you have new forms of uh, consortia that are developing cities that didn't really appear in the West in that form, in its formative days. So you, you have <clears throat> new landscapes in, in cities now made by very large-scale developers that are really uh, changing the landscape drastically. Whereas if you were in Europe, you would find older cities that can have their continuity and stay on longer. So it's this, there's, there's an urge to modernity that is very potent in Asia. Okay, thanks. I think one, uh, perhaps one could answer that question by actually looking at the, the two zones in the world which are urbanizing most rapidly, Africa and Asia. I think what is distinctive of both is that, as we've just seen with this last project, there's an extraordinary ambition what you just said, uh, but also investment. I mean, the level of investment going into, through Iskander, into that part of the south of Johar is, is exceptional. And, of course, that will create formal jobs. It will attract uh, people to come and learn and live and do things. In Africa, what is happening is nearly the opposite, which is a form of urbanization which actually is mainly informal, uh, it's unplanned, and therefore there's no possibility of even benefiting from, let's say, the agglomeration economies, perhaps, that you would have there. In particular, mo- most of sub-Saharan Africa, as you well know, Craig, 
um, and I'm thinking of uh, cities in, uh, in Nigeria and elsewhere, uh, are vast, growing as fast as some of the Asian cities, but without any of the investment uh, in the sorts of infrastructure, hospitals, um, transport, schools, and anything else. And therefore, no possibility of actually, in a way, taxing the system and reinvesting that money. I think the interesting model in Asia is that there is an awareness that you need to invest in this sort of longer term in order to create that infrastructure of, of um, I guess, ur- urbanity. Let me uh, pick up there on Ricky's point and uh, want to ask uh, Dr. said about this. But it would seem to me that both stories are present in Asia, that what you contrast is the African story of relatively unplanned uh, urban growth without the uh, investment in infrastructure to organize it, um, is also the story of some Asian urban growth. And so Asia actually has, and this is the diversity that Mike points to, it has both stories going on, so that we have informal, relatively unplanned growth on very large scales, and we have efforts like Iskander to try to provide a, uh, an organizing platform and infrastructure that will make for more orderly sort of growth. And I want to ask about this, fate. Um, to what extent is it possible to plan and organize in advance in that way um, all of effective urbanism, um, or is there necessarily a dynamism created by unplanned growth as well? Do you have thoughts on that in the Iskander area? My thoughts on this, <clears throat> as far as urbanization is concerned, in fact, uh, for Asia especially, it is uh, for some of the places uh, that has got strategic location, it is not really an option. Uh, the, the phenomenon of urbanization is actually not the phenomenon in those uh, selected places. But uh, what would actually be the model? Uh, uh, do we, in fact, uh, allow ourselves uh, to na- naturally evolve uh, uh, when it comes to urbanization? Uh, or should we, in fact, you know, have it uh, done in a planned and structured manner? And, um, of course, in fact, you know, the latter option is actually much uh, preferred because uh, we have seen the consequences of how urbanization through evolution you know, uh, the, the, the consequences you know, that uh, it has. And uh, in fact, when um, we uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, urbanization is actually something that uh, we will have to do, so we are quite mindful of the fact that uh, we have to manage uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the urbanization uh, so as to minimize uh, the consequences you know, of what we have seen. Obviously, in fact, you know, being um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the one that um, uh, uh, implements or, in fact, you know, develop an urbanization uh, in the economic zone of East Kana, Malaysia, uh, we have, in fact, uh, learned the benefits uh, or learned, in fact, you know, several useful um, uh, uh, lessons uh, in the, the cities that we have uh, benchmarked. Uh, as case study, uh, that uh, we have, in fact, you know, um, factored all this uh, in the strategy uh, that we have uh, incorporated in our comprehensive development plan. So to answer your question, to in fact, you know, uh, as far as it's kind of, uh, Malaysia is concerned, uh, we are quite, in fact, uh, mindful of the fact that uh, the urbanization will have to be done you know, in that structured manner. Okay. I, yeah, just on, on this point of... W- 
the, the two sides, as you say, that, we're fa- that we face in Asian cities. Uh, I think one, one of the issues is what you do with those areas of cities in many Asian uh, contexts, which are massive and are without the sort of facilities that we're talking about. So I'm talking about large areas of, of um, call them slums, even though that is a very negative term, but informal, unstructured place. What do you do with them? Um, can you imagine that you wipe them away and start afresh? I don't think that's economically sustainable. So I think one of the things uh, to watch out for, and I think there are very good examples in, in India in particular, of retrofitting what you have. In other words, going back and making more livable by uh, literally providing the infrastructure of transport, the infrastructure of sewers, but the infrastructure of also social facilities and democratic institutions, which actually mobilize uh, and do more with what is there. Because I think the notion of every Asian city being able to do a Medini on Iskandar's is very, very unlikely. And the mass of people actually living there are the ones who are going up the sort of social and economic ladder. But I think there's a time lag in terms of what is being done to invest in what I would call retrofit those areas. Um, Just three quick points. First of all, we have to understand that for the bigger city regions in Asia, they have been increasing in population by as much as half a million people per year. This is stunning. So any city that can manage that is already doing something uh, in a positive way. It's a half-empty, half-glass kind of... So uh, it's a tremendous pressure on any city governments. Secondly, uh, there's an older literature about the developmental state versus the soft state, and we have both in Asia. Uh, The ones that have really, uh, the developmental states, Korea, and we could put Japan in that, Hong Kong and Singapore and Malaysia, they have managed to create a built environment along with it. The cost to that might be uh, social life, the social participation in that. So we're coming to a new point, I think, in those particular, throughout Asia, in which neighborhoods can have a right to be. Poor neighborhoods have a right to exist. And in cities like Surabaya in Indonesia, for example, the government works with those communities to stay there instead of evicting them when the flood comes. And so that's the next layer we have to get to. I, I believe we need a strong state, but we need a democratic state. So that you just raised, in addition to the point about democracy and strength of the state, an interesting point about sociability in cities. And it seems to me that in this conversation, we have several different ideas of what a city is. We have some notion of a kind of urban sociability. Sometimes that extends into an idea of public gatherings, public space, and cities as public realm. Uh, and so you get both ceremonial spaces, uh, big public squares or things that are built, but you also get cafes and street life and a sense of the public. And that's one of the things that cities have brought. At the same time, the idea of the city implies a sort of centeredness and a notion of a classical urban form. So many people's idea of a city is of Italian cities or Paris or various highly centered. And much of the effort at planning in an earlier era in Asia was to produce that. So that the remaking of Beijing attempts to produce a center. It has an axis of east, west, north, and south. And it's organized with a strong idea of of how it's pulled together and given a center. It's not clear to me that that is the way that cities are developing now. And it's not clear to me that it even is imaginable for the kind of urban regions that we're talking about, where there may be um, a 
huge uh, spread of different um, centers. This relates to density in, Irby, in Ricky's model. So I'd, I'd love each of you to comment on whether what our mental image of a city should be and whether it fits the nature of urbanization today. Should we go in? in well, in rather order? than what they should be, uh, it may be just worth noting that the reality of what is happening is not going the way you're talking. In other words, most cities around the world, including in Asia, it's are not going the way that more, I said historically. Are, are more fragmented more segregated, more exclusive communities, not just in terms of class, but also uh, ethnicities in some case, but very significant in terms of where people live, where people work. The zone city is still very, very much uh, the prevalent model. Mm -hmm. And I think, unfortunately, it's, it's, it, it's a, a rare example where there's a return, perhaps, to what you were saying. I think the environmental agenda, more than anything else, is pushing towards density. And once you can learn how to manage, design, plan density well, particularly with good public transport, a number of things actually sort of follow from that. But um, I would say the tendency is the wrong way, so to speak. But that's because the minute you have uh, economic freedom to choose to move out of a small space, perhaps without heating or uh, air conditioning or electricity, you tend to go to a volume... Uh, which may be out there, but that's what you can afford and that's where you want to be in. Mike? Yeah, something's happened over the last 30 years, um, and one of, the, one of the things that's happened is the change in the idea of the city. Up to around the mid-'80s, uh, you could go back way back, thousands of years in history, the city was seen as something that was public, something that were, even the, the uh, despot had to rule in in heaven's name for the people. From 1985 or so onward, suddenly the city becomes engine of growth, maker of wealth. Uh, the Economist ma uh, magazine put out a competitive cities index a couple of years ago in which it said culture counts for only 5% of the worth of a city. Culture counts for... It's, it's there. It's written. It's an amazing uh, topsy-turvy idea that instead of... Uh, society having an economy, the economy has society. And we have to, so we have to start with that. What is the idea of the city that you want? Uh, I personally prefer the idea of the city as a social theater, as, as a public realm, but we're not getting that. It's okay. going the other way. Okay, there are a lot of dynamic variables, you know, uh, in the city, but uh, we are always, in fact, you know, guided by this, uh, what we call framework. Uh, which would, would like to uh, simplify you know, into three parts. One is um, authenticity. Uh, there must, in fact, you know, be a distinct identity you know, for your city. And uh, number two is inclusiveness. Mm -hmm. So whatever things that we do, you know, we must be guided you know, by that uh, principle. And uh, number three, uh, there should be resilience. So the city, in terms of uh, the strategies you know, that um, uh, we have uh, formulated in the plan, uh, must make sure that, in fact, you know, it provides sustainability, not just in terms of uh, development, uh, social well-being, uh, but uh, also, in fact, you know, the environmental uh, aspect of uh, the city. Okay. Let me ask one last question before we open this to the public. And one that you would not be shocked to hear the, uh, the head of the LSE ask. I want to ask about universities. And in cities, 
universities sometimes have been embedded in each of these different dimensions. Universities can be themselves um, spaces of public gathering and sort of sites of public discussion and, and of urban sociability as to mingle and so forth. And I think the LSE is in part that in London. Um, it animates a public discussion. It makes London's experience more that of a classic city in a way. Um, universities are also obviously part of culture, whether it's the reduction to 5% in the Economist article that Mike mentions or a broader idea that cities are places in which culture is someplace elevated and there's a, a strengthening of cultural productivity and, and appreciation. But cities um, or universities can also be economic growth engines and part of an economic growth model. What's the place of universities? Do they matter to cities? Does it matter um, whether cities have universities and does it matter whether universities are urban or located in the countryside somewhere? I think one immediate response to that is if you, you think of Mike's um, uh, description of Asian cities as being characterized by an aging population, the need for a sort of resource which attracts young people to not just come on a daily basis but to live in city centers becomes absolutely essential. So I think the university has yet another dimension. I mean, there's an example, for example, Copenhagen in Denmark was a city that for 20 years was shrinking about 30 years ago. And they reversed the policy there uh, to allow student housing um, to be dispersed in the sort of central areas. Uh, and that population has actually gone up, etc. I think the, the role of a university in the city, mm -hmm. not on a campus out there, is uh, potentially very significant to the vibrancy and to the resilience you were talking about, Latek. Uh, about that. I mean, there are many examples in London at the moment where in large-scale ex-industrial areas, ex-railway areas, the universities are literally uh, the lifeblood simply because they bring five, 6,000 young people there at unexpected times of day. They don't go home at 5.30. <laughs> uh, this has been a subject of angst and hand-wringing for a long time. What, what's, what's happened to the university? On the brighter side is that there's realization that the university can't remain the ivory tower, that it has to have some, some connection with community. Um, and the, the university, I think, in general, has always prided itself as being the site of independent critical thinking. And I did a review. I'm in urban planning. I did a review of all the programs in the United States, and they all say we do critical thinking. And then I pushed that a little harder, and no one knew what it meant, actually. <laughs> it can mean many things. The downside is that uh, young people in the world today are scared that they have to get a job right away. And it's taken, it's deflated some of the energy out of, uh, out of being autonomous, independent thinking. Uh, it's deflated energy also about, uh, away from liberal arts. We see a grand shift of funding to applied sciences, to the high-tech kinds of things, and a very... Uh, actually decrease in funding of liberal arts kinds of, uh, of parts of the university. That's unfortunate. I think in Asia, uh, given the urbanization that's happened so fast, we find, particularly in urban planning, a lot of faculty are both consultants and teachers, and it creates a lot of conflict in their own minds about you know, what role they're playing. Okay. That takes it. Well, uh, education is actually, uh, we place a, a great importance uh, uh, on education. In fact, you know, it, is a, it is one of our core um, um, strategic clusters. 
And um, <clears throat> the fact that um, education is actually considered like a pulse you know, to the community. So we um, <clears throat> always, in fact, encourage uh, the um, interaction, constant interaction between the universities and the community. And that would actually be also one of uh, the uh, strategy you know, that would ultimately contribute to the sustainability you know, of a city. And I note that you encouraged LSE to visit Iskander and to look at this. Oh, yeah, we, we will continue to explore the discussion. All right, let me open this uh, now to questions from the floor. There's a woman in the third row here. They're bringing you a microphone, so um, hold on a moment. Well, he's going the other way around, but okay. The woman in the third row um, there. Uh, thank you very much for the panel discussion this morning. Um, I'm Jin Z. I just graduated from London School of Economics in 2013. I'd like to direct my question to Dr. Shai Muhammad Ibrahim about the Iskanda project. Um, well, I agree completely that because of the strategic location, we can be very successful when it comes to developing this kind of area. But doesn't that also mean that it could be a double-sided sword in terms of competing with Singapore? How could Iskandar or the southern Johor position itself in the sense that we can actually gain a competitive edge and break the market in Singapore? And even within Malaysia itself, how does Iskandar actually position itself as compared to Kuala Lumpur, per se? And also, when we are talking about expanding Iskandar to actually attract foreign direct investment. What about within Iskandar or the southern Johor itself? Do we have the sufficient and uh, appropriate, uh, the relevant talent in southern Johor to actually feed and attract the foreign direct investment? And what about the southern Johorian? What is their response and their acceptability in terms of this change and development in the southern Johor. Thank okay, you. thank you. That was a classic LSE student question. Right <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the answer. <laughs> well, in fact, you know, we have actually always been asked this question. You know, uh, why are we sort of competing you know, with Singapore? Um, I, it, it is not, in fact, uh, 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 it is not a fact that we are competing. Uh, we don't even have any intention to, you know, of competing with Singapore. Um, Iskandar Malaysia has been developed uh, as an economic zone. Um, <clears throat> one of the intentions is actually to complement uh, the uh, economic successes in, in Singapore. And uh, as you are well aware, you know, uh, there is a, a space constraint in Singapore. And Singapore has been so successful. The economy is developing and expanding. And um, as a result of that, uh, uh, it has contributed to a lot of spin-offs uh, and opportunities. And uh, we are located so strategically you know, because of our close proximity to Singapore. And uh, that is actually why you know, this form of intervention uh, is import important to unleash, uh, like what I said earlier, uh, uh, the strategic and economic value of South Johor. Uh, if uh, there is no such intervention... Um, the state government would not have the means and the capacity and also the resources you know, to do that. And uh, <clears throat> talking about the um, um, supply of talents, um, <clears throat> we are uh, at this inception stage 
Um, that is one of our, we acknowledge that that is actually one of our greatest challenges. Um, basically because, in fact, you know, we do not have the ecosystem of a livable city yet. And uh, people like me who was born in Jobaru, you know, we, I went to school there. I migrated to KL you know, because the, uh, there was no such opportunity. And uh, not many people who are local, you know, those who were born in JB, uh, would want, in fact, you know, to work, even uh, stay in Johobaru, basically because, in fact, you know, we are so comfortable you know, with the ecosystem of living in Klang Valley or elsewhere, you know, uh, any livable city. And uh, it is so important because of uh, that uh, consideration. Uh, when the comprehensive development plan was launched, uh, it is... Um, <clears throat> Uh, required uh, that uh, a company like Iskana Investment comes in. Um, Iskana Investment is a company uh, which is only involved in, in the development of strategic projects. Uh, and uh, we are not just like uh, a typical property developer. Uh, we will put literally you know, our money where my mouth is. Because the level of confidence uh, uh, in the private sector is uh, not really, in fact, uh, that great you know, at the inception of uh, the implementation of uh, Iskana Malaysia. And as a result of that, we have to pump in um, a, the investment in the development of uh, strategic projects, namely Aducity. Aducity has been one of our great success or successes. Uh, it is actually a, a cluster, you know, uh, which includes a value chain you know, of uh, all, almost uh, all the components you know, of education. And we have got several uh, institutions from uh, the United Kingdom that are already operating there. And uh, more to come when LSE establishes uh, <laughs> presence in this part of the world. Uh, and uh, the other uh, strategic project that we have uh, invested is in Legoland, which is... Uh, uh, the first uh, such theme park for them in, in, in Asia-Pacific. And uh, we see, you know, with the completion of uh, the infrastructure, with the completion of uh, these catalytic projects, uh, we always, in fact, uh, use this term uh, in um, 2012 uh, or earlier, uh, where uh, the tipping point would be 2012. So what exactly is actually the tipping point? You know, it is a deadline you know, for our journey that describe uh, phase one of the development uh, of Iskandar Malaysia. And uh, we, um, thank God, successfully uh, managed to deliver what we had represented, uh, the critical components uh, of what makes uh, the ecosystem of a livable city. So what happened is that uh, <clears throat> subsequent to, the, to, to 2012, the tipping point year, it has in fact boosted the level of confidence uh, of uh, the private sector uh, to come in. Because in the past, even though there was a cost arbitrage between Iskandar Malaysia or South Johor compared to Singapore or the likes of uh, Kuala Lumpur or Penang, uh, there was no you know, takers uh, <clears throat> because you know, the ecosystem was not there. So in order to attract the talent to come, work and stay you know, in Iskandar Malaysia, it is so important you know, that we create this critical components that will boost the level of confidence of the private sector, where the private sector will then take it up you know, to build the remaining gaps you know, of the ecosystem. Okay, great. Let me get another question here on the aisle on this side, in front of you on the aisle here. 
you're not coming forward. Yeah, there you are. Yeah. Thank you. Robert Gibson, Hong Kong. Uh, question for Professor Burdett, if I may. Um, you talked about efficiency, commenting on Hong Kong being an example of a quite efficient city. Can you talk a little bit about resilience? Because one of the things that comes with the efficiency is some vulnerabilities. Over half the population of Hong Kong lives above the 14th floor, so we're critically dependent on reliable electricity supply. But we're looking, and we've got a government consultation at the moment, we're looking to the future where our electricity supply will need to be much less carbon-intensive. Um, vegetables, as an example, only 2% or less than 2% is grown within Hong Kong. We are critically dependent on long-term transport of food and many other things. So resilience is a, a key aspect to the future city. Ricky? Yes, well, I mean, that's a, a very important point you're making. And, and, you know, in the short time that one can describe one city such as Hong Kong from, uh, in terms of those parameters, you're leaving out a whole series of other aspects. And I think the notion that there is a, there's a trade-off uh, that people make in terms of living closer together in terms of efficiency means that you live in sometimes incredibly small environments which have very, very negative uh, effects. I mean, w w part of the work we did in Hong Kong uh, with our group at LSE Cities was to actually uh, interview people living in some of the very, very high-density environments. And I think actually the, 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 the mental health uh, impacts of uh, some very, very constrained spaces are considerable, not to mention the notorious uh, cage dwellings, uh, which are sort of, in a way, a, a completely unacceptable sort of byproduct of that uh, system. What this means in terms of uh, resilience and sort of future planning is that regulation, and I think that, you know, here the state plays a very important role, uh, land values, um, and uh, what the longer-term sort of ambition of the state is uh, becomes very significant because you can actually set minimum standards uh, in terms of the amount of space you have uh, and then follow on from that with a series of sort of planning regulations about access uh, and um, uh, ability to reach these places at affordable prices of transport. And I think Hong Kong is grappling with that. Of course, the satellite cities on the edges of uh, Hong Kong, which in a way have dealt with that pressure, in and of themselves have their own problems. You, you must know research done by Hong Kong University, which actually shows that despite Hong Kong have, having one of the highest life expectancy rates literally in the world, around 80 years, suicide rates amongst elderly men in the new towns are also some of the highest. So it's, it's not in any way a, a, a perfect model. Okay, we're getting very close to the time, so let me just get, if I can, a couple of questions, and then I'll let everybody sum up. Uh, so the first one, the woman with her hand up in white on near the aisle here. Yes, just by you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name is Shania from Shanghai. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about um, what's the impact of innovative hubs, for example, technology or artists, um, on urbanization or, let's say, societal development. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Ricky, you may want to comment on that. Let me come to the second row here in the front. There's a gentleman. Yeah, if you want to ask your question, asking them to store up their answers. Let's get the microphone to him, please. Innovation yeah. hubs. Innovation yeah. hubs. Uh, 
I'm Balunt Hebalkar from Mumbai. Uh, after this excellent uh, exposition of the problem of urbanization, I have, my mind has crossed one uh, question which uh, I would like to clarify from Professor Burdet. Now, in India, generally there is a problem uh, which is being discussed that more money is spent on welfare measures than economic growth. There is no balance between welfare measures and economic growth. It has to be balanced to remove poverty. Thank now, you. similarly, urbanization, big cities, more money is being spent on mitigating the problems of the city, in terms of electricity, environment, and all that, at the cost of non-urban areas. So, therefore, would it be feasible to have a solution, as Professor Woodett has already suggested, to build small cities of 500,000 people or something like that? And this movement, can it be encouraged? Okay, thank you. Small cities. Last question, the woman in white near the back there, and then we'll give her a better chance to answer. Hi, uh, sorry to end on a depressing note, but are there any circumstances, particularly Professor Douglas, that you can see we should help uh, help some declining cities maybe die with dignity? And how can you uh, how can you cut off an unsuccessful city? How can you, this is the urban euthanasia question. Can can declining cities die with dignity and make Not way for others? Not euthanasia, but euthanasia. <laughs> right. They go exactly. together, don't they? Okay, so uh, let me invite any of our panelists. Uh, we can start with Ricky, and then Mike, can see if anyone has comments as we wind up here. And you can respond to anything or each other as well as these questions. My problem here is I have so much to say, and I have no time to say it. Uh, <laughs> die with dignity. I just, I'm also a filmmaker. I just made a film on a pottery uh, village or town in Japan that was hit by the earthquake. And they pulled together to save themselves because their kilns and everything were destroyed. And it reminded me that uh, the older traditions of craft and artisanal life, actually, it could be one of the saviors, if I use that word, of smaller areas. Because agriculture has run its, its course as an employment sector. The big cities are faltering, actually. Uh, and you see uh, a return. A lot of people are returning to villages and other places to, to become creative in a very local and a very artisanal way. Uh, Japan also has this Muro Okoshi. It's a kind of revitalization of villages. So there are a lot of things going on, but the problem is we don't look at them. We look only at big picture things, so we should look at those. Um, on the other thing, innovations, I think there's a real dilemma here because... Um, the, the, the big money, the corporate world, has, has discovered the bohemia of cities. And they don't, they don't go hand in hand. One will be pushing against the other. So I've been involved in research in Korea in an area called Hongdae, which is the fountain of indie, of actually K-pop. But now the musicians can't afford to live there anymore because the cultural economy has discovered them. So we should have a long discussion over this at lunchtime, I guess. Okay, anticipating <laughs> lunch. Any concluding thoughts, uh, like I said? Do you want to offer any Not concluding to... thoughts? Um, okay, like <laughs> talking about Innovative Hub, 
whether it is actually uh, important um, and um, what will, act, uh, will be the impact you know, to cities. As far as we are concerned, um, an integral hub is actually uh, an innovation hub is an integral part of the city, and this is uh, very much uh, <clears throat> centered on one of uh, our four. Uh, clusters, you know, uh, uh, for for um, strategic clusters, uh, where <clears throat> one of the, the key components of um, um, innovation or creativity is actually a Pinewood Studios. So we have, in fact, in a Pinewood Studios, and it has really commenced uh, its operations a few months ago. And uh, apart from uh, Pinewood Studios, uh, where it, in fact, you know, contributes you know, to the establishment of uh, uh, a credible um, uh, industry in, in Malaysia. Um, the other part is uh, on innovation is actually our ability uh, so far and, uh, to attract uh, Frost and Sullivan and, uh, to set up their global um, innovation center. And um, we, we are actually still um, trying to lure uh, more MNCs and, uh, to establish uh, their global innovation center in, in this part of the world. Uh, and uh, we are also, in fact, mindful that, that the talents uh, <clears throat> that will come in uh, for the beginning uh, will not, in fact, you know, be from Iskana, Malaysia. Even for Frost and Sullivan, in fact, uh, we can see uh, the, uh, the people who are working in their office in Iskana, Malaysia currently are actually those you know, from um, other parts of the world. So they have assembled a team you know, that is currently now working you know, in Iskana, Malaysia. Okay. <coughs> Thanks very much. Ricky? Just, just very briefly, in a way, what cuts through some of these uh, comments and questions is, is the notion actually of whose city is it? Because I think when one talks about innovation hubs, when one talks about decline, um, at the end, the, the, the process of change is not something that can just be imposed from above. I mean, I think there, there, there's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't want to end this session talking about death of the city, quite the opposite. I mean, I think the notion of uh, cities being places that can regenerate themselves is exactly what uh, we're seeing out there. Even Detroit, you know, a city that really has got as close to death as possible, is now showing signs of, you know, green shoots. Why? Because um, places that have been so incredibly cheap are now being... In, uh, reinvested in by uh, exactly the sort of bohemian crowd that uh, you're talking about uh, a moment ago. I think resilience, um, engagement, uh, the role of civil society in actually creating uh, many of these things is, is just as important as sort of over uh, making decisions from the top down. I mean, I think cities are Lazarus-like. They can raise from the dead and they are incredible centers of innovation at all levels, policy um, and, and uh, business and creativity, simply because it's where people come together. So I was going to give an incredibly brilliant summing up of the entire session, but since we are late in cutting into the lunch hour, I'm not. I'm <laughs> merely going to say it's clear here, thanks to our terrific presenters, that uh, cities are central not just to an Asian future, but as the program of the LSE Asia Forum says, to Asian futures in the plural and a variety of different paths of development. May I thank you all three for this excellent discussion. Thank you. Thank you.